Hi, and welcome back to another edition of Podcasts for Movie Minds. Today, Phantom Thread. I always feel the need to prepare myself, at the very least, for an unfamiliar world before I see a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. That's a given. As part of that preparation, I did some serious research ahead of my recent viewing of Mr. Anderson's latest film, Phantom Thread. Everyone knows by now this is Daniel Day-Lewis's last film. Who voted for that? Losing a huge talent like Mr. Day-Lewis means a seismic shift in the tectonic plates of the universe has obviously been set in motion. It's like the passing of the torch, with no one to pass it to. He is a pure in-camera actor, method one of a kind. Mr. Day-Lewis plays Reynolds Woodcock, a celebrity fashion designer and dressmaker in 1950s London. He tends to the design, construction, and fitting of the dresses, as well as its CIO, Chief Idiosyncratic Officer. His sister Cyril, played by Leslie Manville, takes care of the business end of things, as well as manages, controls actually, Woodcock's life. Reynolds is easily distracted and cannot have his schedule disrupted even in the slightest way. If it is upset or, as he says, ambushed, his concentration is broken for the entire day. Or maybe longer. In the first reel, we see him at breakfast with Cyril and his current muse, who has apparently run out of the juice he used to have to propel Reynolds onto the next design. This prompts Cyril to send her packing. Sister suggests that Reynolds take a weekend getaway to the country to clear his head. Capital idea. They have a country home in addition to their posh London residence, where Reynolds can go and collect his thoughts, and in this case, perhaps mourn the loss of yet another young muse. At a local breakfast place the next day, he is instantly charmed by Alma Elson, a fair-skinned, red-haired waitress who is introduced to us via a clumsy stumble. She takes his breakfast order, which is large enough to feed a team of carpenters: Welsh rabbit with an egg on top, but not too runny, scones. Bacon, sausages, and lapsing tea, etc., etc. Reynolds apparently has a big appetite when he's happy. He asks her to dinner, and the muse grooming begins. Mr. Anderson sets up a frame story that he returns to throughout the film. It's Alma sitting by a fire in a drawing room of some sort and telling a man the story of her and Reynolds. I think it's a terrific device, and it helps us in the long run to sort out the three acts. At dinner, Vicky Reynolds tells Alma about how he sews secrets into the garments he makes—notes, coins, even locks of hair. Fabric is his canvas, and his paintings or dresses are worn by his clientele. He takes Alma back to his country home and describes his love for his mother, who taught him his trade. Reynolds made his mother's wedding dress when she remarried following the death of his father. He had to do it all by himself. His nanny wouldn't dare help him. At the time, it was thought that if you assisted in the making of someone else's wedding dress, you would be cursed and would never marry. That curse could be cast even if all you did was touch the dress. A beautifully tailored dress has immense power. Mr. Anderson introduces us to the sorrow in Reynolds' life early on. His sadness is potentially inescapable. And only expands as the arc of the story unfolds, and we see Reynolds devolve into a childlike state. Eventually, sadness emerges as one of the most important elements in the story. He wants to make Alma a dress and begins taking measurements. He asks Alma to lift her arm or look up as he lays the measuring tape across her body. But they really are instructions, not requests. 
and she willingly follows. Has she become a real-life mannequin? Will she be the new muse? Cyril arrives to check her out. Reynolds calls out the numbers to Cyril, who records her measurements. Cyril tells Alma that she is a perfect physical specimen. Her digits, combined with the girlish charm that, that has enchanted Reynolds, seals the deal. In no time at all, Alma is back at their Georgian apartment in London and is seamlessly assimilated into the house of Woodcock. Each season takes more and more out of Reynolds as he labors to complete his spring or fall line. In his desire to create the one-of-a-kind wedding dress for a countess he has been dressing her entire life, he hits a brick wall over breakfast. Everything revolves around breakfast in this house. Alma suddenly grates on his nerves as she butters her bread and pours the morning tea. Cyril suggests that perhaps it's time for Alma to depart, but Alma is smarter than the average muse, at least the ones these two are used to. This is where the story turns towards psychological thriller. We see Hitchcock influences enter the film's design as the three of them battle for control, but each in very different ways. Reynolds becomes ill and is forced to curl up in his bed, unable to do anything, uh, unwilling to see a doctor. Alma seizes this moment for herself. She alone can take care of Reynolds' needs, and eventually he welcomes it. The power of control shifts to Alma. Cyril is furious that her control levers no longer function as they have in the past. But the business must continue. The dresses must be made, and fittings must be completed. Once Reynolds recovers, he surprisingly asks Alma to marry him. The house of Woodcock is all Cyril has. Everyone seems to have only one thing and are terrified that it will be taken away. She encouraged Reynolds to find new muses to inspire him and show them the door when their abilities ran out. But Alma is very different. She's wedged herself in between brother and sister, gives herself a promotion from muse to wife, and becomes an unexpected threat to Cyril. Mr. Anderson served as his own director of photography, which was a first for him. The result is a lush look of the, to the picture filled with jewel tones, purples, brilliant oranges, reds, royal navy, yellows, and greens. It feels like a 1950s picture with its inevitable trajectory racing towards intrigue and tightly packed with lots of delicious details. Whenever we see Reynolds driving, he is speeding recklessly from place to place, as if fearful of being caught outside the safe zones of his apartment, the country house, or his favorite brassiere. We glimpse almost no life for Reynolds outside his studio, no newspapers or television. The only time we hear him listening to the wireless was on New Year's Eve. Perhaps he was making a desperate attempt to connect with a world that Alma knew and didn't want to give up yet. When we do get outside, the daylight is usually overcast and gray, but that's London. The narrow house and winding stairway represent his vessel of creativity. His personal currency is routine, and it makes him his slave. He knows steady flow is absolutely required for him to work. If that flow would ever be interrupted, all will dissolve. In the end, Reynolds and Alma settle on a symbiotic relationship that I believe a very few will see coming. Johnny Greenwood's score is everywhere in this film. It fills the scenes, but it doesn't overpower. I usually prefer scores that know when to be silent. In Phantom Thread, the music really doesn't give us much of a break, but it really didn't bother me. 
I could still feel the acting above that. I wonder what the Academy will do with this picture in the current climate we find ourselves in. I love this film and all of the performances. Mr. Day Lewis, of course. Vicky Creeps plays Alma beautifully. She balances naivete with slyness and holds her own in the scenes with DDL. Leslie Manville's serial made my blood run cold several times with her steely eyes and strong comeback. I highly recommend this picture. A bit of a side note between Reynolds and Cyril and Catherine Graham, which is Meryl Streep's character in Steven Spielberg's The Post, you will witness a master class on how to hold horn-rimmed glasses. It's really quite something to see. 